0: Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do bow before you this morning, giving you great praise and honor, which you so rightly deserve. Father, we desire to worship you in spirit and truth and to give you glory and to understand, Lord, who you are and who we are not. So, Lord, uh, we thank you for this privilege to come together this morning. Thank you for your scriptures and uh, the richness and the truth which they contain. Lord, help us never to take them for granted, but to always understand they're a great gift from you. Lord, help us to think rightly about the things that Gabriel said to Daniel so long ago, Help us to gain understanding and knowledge, which was your purpose for giving these words. Lord, may we incorporate these things that we learn into our thinking. Uh, May they strengthen us in the world in which we live today. and May we think rightly about where this uh, creation is headed and all that you have planned for it. We understand and recognize that you are sovereign. And so before you, we bow and worship and give you glory. Thank you for this privilege this morning, Lord. Amen. This is week number 49 in our discussion of the book of Daniel. And we're kind of stuck in chapter 9 and verse 26. Been here for a couple of weeks. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're not here for three or four more weeks, uh, just trying to gain an understanding of the things that Gabriel said to Daniel in this verse. And you, last week, we kind of took a step back so we could gain perspective of what is being said here, and we looked at uh, First of chapter 7 and saw that for... The vision of the four beasts, there were short-term fulfillments, which I believe ultimately culminated in the the Roman Empire in the ancient days. And then there's a yet future, long-term perspective of what is written there, where many of the things that are written in chapter seven match up to what is written in Revelation. And there seems to be a correspondence there and then we looked at chapter 8, where we're told specifically that those, uh, the ram and the goat, represent Medo Persia and Greece. And there was a short term fulfillment of that prophecy through the man, the king, the Seleucidan king, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And then there's yet, because of some of the things that are written there, especially the abomination of desolation, where he sacrificed Jewish people on the altar of Zeus, which was built over the altar of God, better known as the abomination of desolation, a a total desecration of the altar of God. And again, Jesus Christ and the book of Revelation speak of abominations of desolation that happened in the last days. And so there's yet a future fulfillment, even though there's already been a past fulfillment. And then we didn't talk about it yet, but over in chapter 11, you see the same thing, that there are many prophecies that are given there, um, many of which were fulfilled um, in the last century of the BC years. And yet some of the things that are there, um, we'll see it when we get there, we'll interpret it, that there's yet a future in what's given in chapter 11 that matches up again to the end days. And so it's not unreasonable when you come to chapter nine to have the perspective that there's both a short-term fulfillment and then yet a longer-term fulfillment because the book of Daniel is full of that type of imagery, those types of visions. And so that's the way we're looking at, at chapter nine is in that same light, and specifically at verse 26, there's some, not hints or clues, but some statements that are made that you have to try and figure out what they mean, what they meant to Daniel when he heard them, and what they mean to us when we, in the 21st century, look back at history and read them. And so as we come to chapter 9 and verse 26. You remember the first thing that he talks about there is that there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks and then Messiah or the anointed one will come. So this is speaking of the end of the 69th week is where this verse really begins. And that speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he did in his first advent. But then the verse goes on and talks about um, the people of the prince who are to come, or is to come. And so Daniel does not know who that is. It's not defined for him. I don't think Gabriel knows who it is. He knows what God told him to say, and so he is giving Daniel the true message. But exactly who he's talking about is not explicitly given in this verse or even in this chapter. And so we will try and um, determine who that is. Uh, To do that, we'll have to go to extra biblical sources um, because there is nothing in the scripture that specifically defines who these people are. But I believe there's a lot that has been written that will give us an indication of who this is. Because a couple of things are clearly known. One thing is that these people have a prince and that that prince will make a covenant for seven years. And then in the middle of that covenant, in the middle of the seven years, or the seven periods of time, he'll break that covenant and he'll stop the sacrifices that the Jews will be performing, the daily sacrifices and the sacrifices of grain. So we know that, we're we're given that. And if you look back at the first century AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, there was no covenant. There were no seven years. There was no agreement that got broken or any of that. So that begins to give us some information about who these people are and and what actually takes place. So we know those things specifically, and they don't seem to match up to the historical record. But I've told you before that the predominant view of people who are pre-millennial, believing that Jesus Christ will come back at the beginning of the millennial reign and reign for a thousand years, the vast majority of those people who hold that perspective believe that this chapter, this, these very verses, speak about a revived Roman Empire that will be there at the end of the age. And that from that European revived um, Roman Empire is where the Antichrist will come from. That is the predominant view of people today. Although in recent years, really for the last 10 years, I've seen that that's begun to change. It's slow and for sure it will take a long time for that to change, but I do see that it's beginning to change because history doesn't seem to match up very well with those thoughts that it's a revived European empire. And so what I want to try and do is go to some extra biblical sources, sort of like we did with Maccabees, and look at who these people might be, and what is written both today and what was written in the first century AD about what took place at this time. because the scriptures um, you know are don't say anything about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, other than Jesus' prophecy of it in uh, Matthew 24. The scriptures don't address it, mainly because the canon had been complete except for the book of Revelation by the time the destruction of Jerusalem took place. So the only book that was written after the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD was the book of Revelation. And you'll even find some who believe that it was written before the destruction, but I don't hold to that view. I believe it was written afterwards. Um, so we can talk about that later. So what I want to do um, this morning is to begin to look at some of these other resources that are available. And I, some of these are in my library. I bought a bunch of them. I have all these books on ancient Roman military development that the only reason they're on my shelf is because it, Addresses verses 26 and 27 of this of this book. Um, so I've I don't know how many I've got. I, I know there's probably half a dozen at least. And some of them I've read a lot of. Some of them I've read just a little bit. But I've got some excerpts that we'll look at this morning. Now it's worth noting that if God would have wanted to, He could have told Daniel through Gabriel exactly who these people were, because you remember back in chapter 8 and verses, I think it's 20 and 21, where, you know, we have a ram and a goat, and the same Gabriel is the one giving Daniel the interpretation back in chapter 8, and in verses 20 and 21, I mean, Gabriel could not have been more explicit. He says, the ram, which you saw with the two horns, represents the kings of Media and Persia. That's pretty clear. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between its eyes, his eyes, is the first king. And we know the first king, the large horn, was Alexander the Great of the Grecian Empire. So, I mean, it could not be more explicit about who. The ram and the goat represented. So, God could have, if He wanted to, have done the same thing in chapter 9. He could have told Gabriel exactly who these people are, and we wouldn't have this discussion today because it would have been given clearly. But God chose not to do that for His own reasons um, so that we could talk about it today and we could try and determine who this is speaking of. Who are the people? of the prince who is to come. And if if we get the people right, then we get the prince right, because the prince rises out of the people. So we're gonna talk about these things and um, we'll use some pretty recent references. That's where I'll start this morning. And then we'll go to some ancient references that speak a lot about what happened in 70 AD. So, Um, the first thing I want to, I don't know why people do this. I mean, it just kind of baffles me, but there are still people today who are studying and get their PhD in Roman military features, or how did the Roman Empire grow, or how did their military operate? There's still people writing thesis and getting their PhDs in this stuff today. And mainly because there have been some recent discoveries of documents and scrolls and that type of stuff that speaks to some of this. And so some of the things I want to first start out with is some recent, fairly recent, um, writings that... These guys, you wouldn't say that they're perfect, they're not without error like the scriptures are, but they've done a lot of study and they've come to conclusions. And when you get a lot of people doing a lot of study that come to the same conclusion, you begin to believe, okay, that's probably accurate. And so I wanna give you a little bit of that, but then we'll look at the ancient that confirms it. Okay, so, the first place I wanna start with is um, just a, general, a couple of general statements. It's pretty well known that the Romans themselves, those from Rome, what we would call Italy today, the Italians, could not have administered successfully over all the provinces that Rome conquered. There just aren't enough people to do that. So it's pretty well accepted and documented that when, when the Roman Empire began and when it first developed, that the predominant military soldiers of that empire were what we would call Italian. They were from around the region around Rome. But then as it began to grow, and they conquered multiple provinces, most of what had been Alexander the Great's kingdom, not all of it, but most of it, then there weren't enough Italians to spread out over all that, so what they began to do is hire people from the provinces that they defeated, would pay them money to come and be in their army and to rule through military over the provinces. Now, if you were from a province and you got conquered and you decided to go into the Roman military, you didn't rule over your province. What they would take you is they would take you to a people that you hated and put you over their province and people from their province would rule your province. So you didn't get to rule your own area, mostly. And so they would use these people because they hated their neighbors and they would put down any insurrection um, for Rome, but mainly because they hated the people. So that's kind of the way, and, and it's pretty well understood that the bigger the empire got, the more provincial the military got, that there were people who were not Italian in it. And Yeah, which is, which is why the capital moved from Rome to Constantinople, because it was in shambles, but as we've discussed, it didn't last for another 1,000 years after they moved to Constantinople. But Rome itself, um, really beginning in the 2nd century, but definitely by the 3rd century, was totally destroyed and overtaken by the mainly Germanic tribes out of what we call today, Germany. Um, Even some of the Spanish and even from the English down into that area. So, um, and and all through Rome's history, you know, the way you became the Roman Empire, or Roman Emperor, was to kill the previous guy. I mean, that's the way it generally went. not always, but a lot of the time. So very barbaric, very um, uh, incestuous in the way that the government went. But we're talking about the military. And so I've got this quote here from um, a guy that I have some of his writings. Um, his name is uh, Lawrence uh, Cleffey. And he is a professor of Roman history and archeology span at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. So not someone from the US, not writing in our language, but he wrote several papers uh, from 1971 through 2000. So, uh, and and they're all about the Roman army and so he wrote this series of papers through his research over these years, and he wrote this statement that after AD 68, which is clearly before 70 AD, after AD 68, the legions consisted almost exclusively of provincials, meaning non-Italian people, not Romans, people from all these other regions that had been conquered. Now, we'll see some more of that In detail and so the the Roman army by his account by the time that Rome destroyed Jerusalem was not necessarily made up of Italians now clearly there were some Italians there we know their names Uh, we know who the leaders were Um, that's not without good knowledge but who was in the military is the question that we're after And so I have this next quote, which is from a guy named Antonio Santosuas. And he's a professor of history at uh, University of Western Ontario, so out of um, Canada. And he, again, is another one of these guys who got his PhD, wrote a lot of papers. And he wrote um, a book called, this is what you would wanna pick up and read, right? Storming the Heavens, Soldiers, Emperors, and Civilians of the Roman Empire. Sounds like a good book to go to sleep to. But, um, and it's thick, it's a big volume. But a couple of quotes, well, what he said was that um, under Augustus, who reigned pre-BC to 14 AD, that under Augustus, at the beginning of the century, so 0 to 14 AD, about 60% of the army was still Italian. But then by the time you get to 68, he says about 50% was still Italian. So there's not perfect agreement among these guys. And then by the end of the first century, it was probably as low as 20%. So one in every five. So you have one guy who says it was mainly provincial. You have another guy who says it was maybe 50% or so. Okay, there are other people who wrote about this. And the next guy is a guy named Nigel Pollard. And Nigel Pollard is at the University of Oxford in the Institute of Archaeology. And he wrote another stimulating book called Soldiers, Cities, and Sil- Silva." Silivations, sylv- sylv- sorry, in Roman Syria. And he wrote, and I've got a, a pretty significant quote from here, just listen what he says. In the empire as a whole, most legionnaires from the beginning of the period to the reign of Claudius were Roman citizens of Italian extraction. So that matches what we saw the other guy say in the early Roman empire. But then Through the reign of Claudius and Nero, about half the recruits for their legions were of provincial origin, and by the reign of Trajan, which would be toward the end of the first century, legionnaires of provincial birth outnumbered Italians by about four or five to one. So the Italians were again down to about 20% of all the people who were in the military, okay? So you take that, and he he continues, and he said, legions based in Cappadocia, Syria, and Egypt were made up of recruits of Asia Minor, Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt, but not necessarily from the province in which the soldier was based. And that's what I told you. They would take Egyptians and put them over the Syrians. They would take Syrians and put them over the Asia Minor people. And then the Asia Minor maybe over the Egyptians. So they they moved them all around. They didn't allow them to reign in the province from which they originally. Now, that wasn't exclusively true, but it was often true. So you have this thought that through the first century, the Italians make up less and less and less and less and less of of the Roman's military because there just aren't enough of them to go around. So you go on and you, those are recent publications. Those are people who wrote in recent days. Now, there are two main guys that I want to look at from the ancient world, and one of them you know the name, which is Flavius Josephus, which you've heard of before Uh, He he lived uh, pre-B.C. and then died in about, um, that's not right. Um, He was from 37 to 100 A.D. So he was actually there when the Romans overthrew Jerusalem. And he writes a lot about it. So we're going to read some of the things that he wrote about his perspective. Now you have to remember Josephus was Jewish. He actually fought against the Romans and so his perspective can't be 100% accurate, right? It's got a lot of bias in it. But then there's another guy who wrote in the first century, Cornelius Tacitus. And Tacitus lived from 56 to 120 AD. So he was a teenager when Jerusalem was destroyed. And, but he was commissioned by the Roman emperor to write history of the Roman Empire. So he clearly writes from a Roman perspective. So you have these two guys who balance each other, Josephus the Jew and Tacitus the Roman. And so the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. But when they talk about facts and just make statements, they probably aren't writing with a lot of bias. They're just telling you what existed at the time in history. And so the first person I want to look at here is Tacitus. And Tacitus wrote several different works for the emperor. He wrote um, something called The Annals. He wrote the histories. He wrote the Angricola, the Germania, and the dialogue on oratory, which is really just this is the way that you're supposed to do oratory. And he was a master at both oratory and writing. I mean, that's what he studied, that's what he did for his whole life. And so um, he wrote all these different histories. About and they go by years and they're in chronological order. And so his book number 13 um, is about 54 to 58 AD. And so in that book, this quote I have from him here um, is what he wrote. So this comes out of book 13 in the years 54 through 58. Amidst this, and the like popular talk. And what he's talking about is there's this discussion in the Roman Empire of the hierarchy and they're discussing um, some young, very young, and still in their teens, military leaders who are doing extremely well. And should they be promoted or should we promote the guys who've been in the military a long time to be in charge over them. So there's this discussion going on. And so in the middle of that discussion, he writes, amidst this, amidst that discussion, and like popular talk, Nero ordered the young recruits levied in the adjacent provinces to be brought up for the supply of the legions of the east, and the legions themselves to take up a position on the Armenian frontier, while two provinces of old standing, Agrippa and Antiochus, were to prepare a force for the invasion of the Parthian territory. So what, what Nero decided is we'll do both. We'll let some of the older guys, being leaders of legions, and we'll bring up some of the younger guys to do the same thing. So you'll have this mixture of young leaders and older leaders Um, over the legions of the Roman military. Okay, but then Tacitus, I mean, he writes a lot about all of this, but clearly some of those younger leaders would have been people who they had conquered and from the provinces that they put over their legions because there just aren't enough Italians to go around. so... Tacitus writes a lot about that, but I pulled out this one little excerpt that he wrote that tells us who was in one of the legions, and specifically the third legion of the Roman Empire, and that'll be important later, because the third legion was one of the legions that overtook Rome. And so of that third region, Tacitus wrote, A shout was raised on all sides, and the soldiers of the third legion saluted, as is the custom in Syria, the rising sun. So if you go back in ancient history and you look at the people of um, Syria, which is bigger than what we think of Syria today. It's a much larger um, area than what we see as Syria today that those people worship the sun. And so here you see that if the whole army stands up and turns toward the sun, that they're worshiping the sun, meaning they're not Italian, they're mainly Syrian. And so this third legion, which is one of the legions that attacked Rome, is not Roman, is Syrian in its origin. They attacked Jerusalem. They were not from Rome, they were from Syria. Did I say that wrong? (laughs) Okay, yeah, so they clearly invaded Jerusalem. They were led by the Roman leaders, but many of the people who actually did the attack were from Syria. Now we'll get more detail about this because Josephus goes into this in great detail about who the people were, and so does um, um, Tacitus. I mean, they both write about this. So um, so at, at least some, if not most of the soldiers from the third legion were of Syrian descent. And apparently they worshiped the sun, and we have this other thought that By the time you get to 70 A.D., maybe the Roman army is only 20% Italian. So we'll begin to put some of these things together. I just want to get a lot of this on the table. Now, Josephus is a very interesting guy. And you may not know first century history very well, but the reason the Romans came against Jerusalem and ultimately destroyed it was because the Jews were uprising. They were fighting against the Romans. They actually revolted against the Romans um, in the mid first century. And so they began, actually the priests um, got together and put in place military leaders, some of who were the priests. And Josephus is one of those because Josephus writes about himself that he um, was the son of Matthias, who if you remember from the Maccabees, we know who those were, and that he was a priest. And so they put Josephus in charge of some of the troops who were revolting against Rome. And he fought, he was a military leader who fought against them until his unit was captured. And when he was captured, the decision was made to keep him, uh, not kill him like they did most of his troops, but to keep him and use him to help them overtake Jerusalem. And so actually before Jerusalem is overtaken, Josephus goes to the gates and pleads with them to give up, because if they don't, they're all going to be killed. And so you have a lot written about Josephus about this time. We're going to look at some of that in future weeks, because it gives you a picture of what's going on before Jerusalem is actually destroyed. Right, they're mostly foreign. And obviously much of that, those armies were likely young, zealous. Sure. Right.
1: And they are very likely part of these legions, as you see here, that were part of what was to
0: go attack. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these, these legions would, and these would have been the, the premier people, right? The strongest, the youngest, the able to destroy people. Very yeah, very and, and remember this. That even at that time in the first century AD, that the surrounding areas still hated the Jews. They always hate always have, always will hate the Jews. So when you get this zealous Roman army going against the Jews, oh we're all in, right? I mean, that would have been the attitude. And what we'll find, and we'll get very specific in this, not only did the Roman army invade Jerusalem, but there were a lot of mercenaries who went with them that were not in the army. I mean, upwards of 60,000 mercenaries. So we'll look at this in specificity as we go further into the weeks. But you begin to get the picture of who is going to invade Jerusalem. And and that's what we want to talk about now. Again, Josephus is a very interesting guy because he's clearly Jewish. He's even a priest who led the military against Rome, who gets captured and then helps the Romans not to overtake Jerusalem, but to try and persuade the Jews to give up because they stand no chance. And Josephus himself is wounded in all of this um, and is, is right there at the city of Jerusalem when all of this is taking place. Biblically, well, li- you think about
1: all the ites, right? You have the Israelites, the Moabites, the Shammah.
0: Right. All those ites, with the exception of the one that still remains today, quite frankly, right. were hateful of, of the Israelites. Well, we, we've seen that all... Well, and we've seen that in Daniel, right? That, I mean, the reason they got destroyed and captured is because people hated them. And even when they're trying to rebuild their city, all the people around them are still hateful and threatening them and don't want them to rebuild the city. I mean, this is just the way it goes all through history. As it is right now. Yeah, oh yeah, it's still there today, right? I mean, there's nobody in the area around uh, Judea who like the Israelites, right? I mean, there's nobody. Everybody's fighting against them and wars against them. So um, it's still the same today as it was then. And if they could today, all those countries would invade Israel and wipe them out. They're just not able. And so they don't, although they have plans. (laughs) So... Right. Yeah. You're not, I mean, Israel is less than 10 million people. Right. Yeah. There's a plan here, right? And we're reading about that plan. And that's what I want to try and put together for you. So there's people who study today who confirm the things through the chronicles and the cuneiforms and all that we do have today, that what Josephus and uh, Tacitus wrote about the Roman army was indeed true, and they weren't, um, you know, Tacitus would have no reason to say that the Roman army was not Roman other than it was factual, because he was writing for the Roman emperor, That's um, that's who he was delivering his works to. So he was writing in favor of the Romans. So he had no reason to say that they were, the armies were mainly not Roman. And so that k- should carry some weight with us. So I want to get into Josephus and some of what he wrote, but I'd rather do it all in one week. So we're going to stop here today and then try, and actually we won't be able to unpack it all in one week but I can get it on the table and then we can come back and talk about it. So for a couple of weeks, we're gonna look at the works of Josephus and get more specific. And he actually writes about the actual attack and burning of the temple and who did it and who tried to stop it and who was for it. And so that should give us a lot of information. So that's where we're headed. I don't like to be extra biblical, I really don't. I prefer to be in the scriptures, but for this, who are the people of the prince who is to come, this is where you have to go. So that's where we're gonna be for a couple of weeks.
1: Right. because of one or two little insertions of historical fact that kind of add to the ingredients that say, wait a minute, all of my thinking that too was extra biblical in reality because they were inserting details that the scriptures didn't give can be changed like that. And this is the point. If you are willing to let your... Traditions and thinking that are extra biblical and well-formed over a long period of time just fade away as the... Yeah. And that's what's so important about some of these findings that we're finding
0: with, with
1: scriptures and things of history that are amazing.
0: You know, and this is what you always run into. Uh, whether you want them or don't, you have presuppositions. Everybody does, because you've all been taught by other people. And so you have certain things that you believe are true that if I really challenged you, you couldn't tell me why you think they're true other than someone told you they were true. And that's the, that's the way it is with the revived Roman Empire. Why do you believe that is true? Because they've heard it all their life. And so you have to be willing to give up your presuppositions and let the facts speak. And that is very difficult to do. It is really hard to do. Something you've learned and heard your whole life to allow facts and readings and all to trump that, you may come to the same conclusions that you've always believed. But you have to be open to let other things be analyzed and studied and then come to conclusions. And that is very difficult to do. things that were birthed in something like that. And yet and then you immerse church and generation after generation. And they think that's more true than the Bible. Right. Because that's what I've been taught. Well and I mean you can you can go to certain religions and they believe absolutely that what the leaders wrote is more true than the Bible. Right? And the and popular religions uh believe that w- what their leaders say is more important than what the scripture says. They're yeah, they're very explicit. I, I, I say bunk, right? That what I say is not authoritative, what the scripture says is, but I am going to bring in some history so that we can see what other people wrote who are mainly unbelievers about this stuff. So that's what we try and do for a couple of weeks. Thanks for your time.